So if you want to turn in your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be beginning our Beatitudes series, or what I like to call the Beautiful Attitudes, and we're going to be focusing on being poor in spirit today. We're going to begin by asking just a quick couple questions here, kind of a little bit of a quiz. Everybody ever watch the presidential inauguration speeches? Anybody ever watch those kind of speeches and everything? I kind of like watching those things. And some of those uh, speeches come out with some really fantastic sayings that make their way into our culture. And so we're going, I'm going to quote a few of them today, and we're going to see if anybody knows who said these particular phrases or, or um, who said this in their speech. Now, Tammy doesn't get to participate because she's already read it and she has a copy of it back there on her phone. So. But everybody else can participate. Yell it out if you know who this was. The first one, part of the speech. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and for his orphan, to do all which we may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Who said that? Nobody? 1800s, I'll give you a hint. There you go, Abraham Lincoln, very good. Second inaugural address, 1865, at the end of the Civil War. This one will probably be a little bit more familiar to you because it was within our lifetimes. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. John, John F. Kennedy, 1961. Very good. <laughs> They're yelling from in the back. Awesome. Okay, this president inherited a very down economy, and that's kind of the, the background of what he is speaking to. He said, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Reagan. Very good. Ronald Reagan, 1981, his first inaugural address. Somebody's a Republican over here. <laughs> <laughs> I split these up between Republican and Democrat, so you can't accuse me of, uh, of being, uh, <laughs> being uh, leaning one way or the other here. Okay, next one. I don't know if anybody here was alive quite when this one was, but probably pretty close. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror by which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Were you alive when Roosevelt? That was 1933. I don't think you were quite alive yet, were you? Before you were born. A couple years before you were born, right? But I think, how many, uh, did he reign for, I mean, rule for two decades? Yeah, well, four terms. This was 1933 uh, that he quoted that Almost one. Almost two decades. Almost two. Yep. So inaugural addresses, whether they're given by a president or a leader of a company or even a new pastor recently elected to serve a congregation, are important because they communicate the vision and the, the direction that a leader wants to take a people. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is starting to attract large crowds here. 
And he's getting people around him and he's gathering everybody together and he decides to give his inaugural address as the leader of the new kingdom of God that is coming upon the world. And he tells what is expected of the people who accept his invitation to join his kingdom. And Matthew chapter 5 begins the Sermon of the Mount, which is a vision and mission statement of the kingdom. A kingdom that is transitioning away from justification by law and going into justification by grace. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be studying these first few verses of Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus begins this message to his people by describing some of the characteristics that will be seen in the people that follow him. And these characteristics that we see in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 are called the Beatitudes. And Jesus begins with the, the following Beatitude that we'll be studying today. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we ask, Lord, that you take these beautiful attitudes that we see in the Scripture and make them part of who we are as a people. Not only a people that call uh, Cooley Community Church their home, but who we are as an individual person. We ask, Father, that you just en envelop us with these, that you make them who we are, how we view the world, and finally, how we serve you, Lord especially this one being poor in spirit today. Father, we ask this in your name. Amen. Now, these next several weeks, we're going to be studying these Beatitudes, or as I like to say, the beautiful attitudes of Jesus, or you could also say they're the attitudes that we are supposed to be, the be attitude. And I purposely scheduled this sermon season or sermon series, excuse me, after the Ten Commandments because they take us away from the Old Testament understanding of God into a complete revelation of who He is in Jesus Christ and what His ultimate plan is for humanity. You see, the Ten Commandments told us what we should do, but the Beatitudes say this is who you should be. The Ten Commandments governs our behavior toward God and others. But the Beatitudes say, this is how you should think of God and others. How you should be toward God and others. The Ten Commandments deal with the external, but the Beatitudes deal with what is really on the inside of us. So we're going to take a look at this first Beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit and see what it means for us on the practical level. First of all, let's look at this word blessed. Understanding this term blessed helps us to really grasp what Jesus is telling us here about the beautiful attitudes. And the word blessed here in the beatitude is, is best understood as meaning happy. In fact, some of, the, some of the modern translations translates the Latin word for really happy that is beautus, and he translates that into happy are, the, are those who know they are poor in spirit. That's the way some of the modern translations translate this verse. And that's the exact opposite of what our world and culture tells us, isn't, isn't it? I mean, our world and culture don't tell us happy are the poor in spirit. They would say happy is the huge spirit. Happy is the, the great spirit. And this concept of happiness that exists today in our culture says that I know what makes me happy. I know what makes me happy, and an infinite God needs to bless my finite knowledge of what makes me happy 
and then I'll be fine. That's what our culture is telling us that is the way we should be today. And if we sit back and think about it for a second, isn't the pursuit of this nebulous idea of happiness the source of most of our problems? Not only on a personal level, but as a society? Most of the bad habits that we have come from the idea of pursuing our own individual happiness. Another word that the church uses for this, these bad habits is something called a besetting sin. And a besetting sin is some action, some behavior that you struggle with all the time. It's something that and it has everything to do with the pursuit of happiness that is apart from what God tells us is something that we should do or be. And a besetting sin, I like to, to compare it to like a behavioral cancer. It's something that, that we struggle with, we struggle with, we struggle with. We get a breakthrough in it, and it seems to go in remission. And then a, like a few days, a few weeks, a few months later, it kind of creeps back in and starts bothering us again. And this is something that people will struggle with their entire life. Let me illustrate this, this idea of pursuing happiness with a recent news story. One of the ways that we pursue happiness is through the accumulation of wealth. And recently, there was a lottery drawing for, I believe it was the second richest lottery prize in history. $758 million was on the line in the, in the last Powerball drawing a few weeks ago. And when I was at the gas station in on Alaska, we, we have a gas station we stop at to get fuel for the ambulance and pick up snacks and things like that. And there's a guy standing in line waiting to, to get up to the cashier holding a, one of those lottery things that you fill out your numbers in and he's praying over it. I mean, I don't know if he was Pentecostal charismatic, but he was naming and claiming it. He said, God, I know that I'm holding the winning numbers in my hand because I know you want me to be blessed and I know you want me to live in prosperity and I know that you want me to be able to, to fund your kingdom if I win this. And he was just going after it. And I was just looking at that and I was like, wow. And I think, you know, in all honesty, any one of us would praise God if we won that amount of money, wouldn't we? I mean, if all of a sudden we have $758 million in the bank, we're thinking, man, we could give that to some worthwhile charities. We could fund some missionaries. And I think that would be our focus for a short time. But then we're going to decide, you know, we're looking outside. The leaves are changing. It's getting a little colder out. You know, we're like, you know, rural Wisconsin, it's kind of boring here. And I have all this money. Maybe I should move to where it's a little bit more sunny. I know. Let me move to Beverly Hills. That's where the rich people live, right? I'm going to go live in the 90210. Beverly Hills. Here I go. I'm the Wisconsin hillbillies. There we go. I'm going to go buy that seaside mansion overlooking the Pacific Ocean. I'm going to get a yacht that I can take out on the Pacific Ocean. Then I'm going to have some nice cars, some nice trucks, maybe a hot rod, whatever your preference of automobile is. And then you decide, you know what? I have all these cars, I have all this property, I have all this yacht, I have all this thing. That is way too much for one person to take care of, even if they don't have a job. So I have to hire some people. And now I have to worry about, gosh, are these people actually doing their jobs? I don't have like a maid stealing the expensive silverware I bought or, you know, are they, are they racing my cars around? And now I have to worry about that and have to hire somebody to watch the people that I hired to take care of me in the first place. And then you see down the road that the millionaire down the road, man, they have like one of those infinity pools. 
All I have is some in-ground pool that's covered and heated and everything. I better go get an infinity pool. So you build a bigger pool. And then that Bob, that movie producer on the other side of the road, down the road, he just drove by in an Aston Martin. And now I got to get a Bentley because I have to have a car just as good as his. And then you realize suddenly you're looking over at your spouse and you're thinking, wow, they're not as good looking as, as that trophy spouse that my neighbor has there. Maybe it's time to trade them in for a younger model. And then, whoops, 50% of your wealth is gone in the divorce. And through all that, with all your wealth, you try to buy your way into happiness, and you end up never finding it. It would be like going out this morning into a field with a bag and grabbing some fog to bring it here to church to show us. You're never going to be happy. That's what pursuing wealth is like. And ironically, as I was reading a few news articles about people who win the lottery, you know that the suicide risk for a lottery winner is five times the national average? In fact, I read a story that said a guy who won $258 million, he said, he said his only desire, 10 years later, only desire in life would be to go back in time and burn that lottery ticket and never turn it in. His daughter overdosed, his son was in rehab, he was divorced, and living on his own, yeah, he had a bunch of money, but he couldn't trust anybody, he was depressed on 27 different antidepressants. I mean, his life was just ruined by having all of that money. It was all about the danger, and it was all showing the danger of a pursuit of just being happy. Happiness is not a fruit and it's not a benefit of the Holy Spirit living within you. Amen. Joy is. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy is an assurance that comes through faith that God is in control of your life. God is in control. Joy is, is an assurance that, that you can trust Him. And that you rest in what He has allowed you to have. And take your happiness from the joy that He has given you. And the pursuit of happiness doesn't just exist outside of the church world. Sometimes it exists within the church. And within the church, sometimes we, we get religious in, in, in our effort to try to be happy. We set up some arbitrary rules that we're comfortable with obeying. And we base our happiness, our security, and our hope in following these rules that we have instead of just trusting in Christ. And the best of us probably have this a little bit of this mindset in our lives when it comes to our relationship with God. However, we have to confront that because it's just as bad as the cancer of besetting sin because it takes our eyes off of what Jesus has done for us and puts it on our own effort to gain our salvation and to keep our salvation. And I want to show you this in a practical way through a story that Jesus told his followers. And you'll see the difference between putting your happiness and hope in following your own religion versus being poor in spirit and trust in something outside of yourself to gain your salvation. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is speaking to a crowd that contained a lot of religious people and a lot of religious leaders. They were called the Pharisees. And Jesus said in, in, Math, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he said, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now the Pharisees were the religious elite of their time. They were the holiest of all the holy people. They were the leaders of their churches and the ones that everyone looked to for spiritual guidance. The tax collectors, on the other hand, were like the IRS on steroids. They were like terrorists that collected your taxes. Not only did they collect taxes for a government that had subjugated you and was ruling over you with an iron fist, but most of them cheated people by taking more taxes than they should and keeping the difference for themselves. They were considered traitors and even worse than the Gentiles. And Jesus masterfully uses these two extreme examples in the people of his time to make his point. And that last verse here is the key and the central theme behind this story, which is religious pride. And I, I know this is going to be a little controversial to some, but give me your best ear just for a moment. As a pastor, when it comes to people who are in the church, I am not so much concerned about their besetting sin as I am about the potential of religious pride in their life. And let me be clear, any sin is bad in your life. Sin sent Jesus to the cross. Sin is bad. But sin usually just affects the individual or maybe just a little bit in the family. But, but religious pride is destructive of the entire body of Christ and the witness of Jesus Christ going out into the community. And that's why this first beatitude deals with it. Remember, Jesus' audience here were Pharisees and people who have been taught by Pharisees their entire life. These are people who have lived and grown and breathed spiritual performance, or excuse me, breathed performance-based spirituality. And Jesus comes along and he turns it over on its head and he said, you think God is impressed by your obedience to 613 laws and your hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clarification to these laws? Because you're following a method of drawing near to God that has only produced a fruit of religious pride that makes you think you're better than other people. And that's why the first beatitude drives this truth home. The first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The first beatitude says, if you want the blessing and favor of God, if you want to be used in his kingdom to the maximum extent you can be, if you want to show people that Jesus lives within you, you need to die to yourself. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You need to understand that we bring nothing to the table when it comes to our salvation. Any talent or any ability you have comes from God. 
And therefore, you can take no credit for it. You know, you and I are not all that unique. We, we like to think of, of ourselves unique. We like to, to think of, of God and the devil as two opposing captains of a kickball team. And God going, you know, I, that, that woman down there, she sings really great. I need her on my team. I better get her before the devil gets on, my, on their team. And they're like picking teams or something. And, and God's picking us because we, we can bring something into his kingdom. That's, that's not the way it is. God has already placed things within each one of us. And he wants us to use that for his kingdom. Any talent ability that we have comes from God as part of our creation. We can take no credit for it. In fact, our history and our life are a subplot in his story of redemption and salvation. And everything that has happened to us and in our life is meant to grow us into what Jesus wants us to be. And that's why our Lord said we need to be poor in spirit. You need that pureness of the Holy Spirit flowing through you. And if you are so full of yourself, there is no room for God. And you can't expect His power to flow through you or to help you. You can't expect His favor to bless you or His presence to guide you if you're full of yourself. And these beautiful attitudes aren't just a way that we are to live They're also, if you look at at them as a whole, the steps we are to take to salvation. If you look at it, if if you're becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, you start out with being poor in spirit. You start out by acknowledging you have nothing to give God. You then mourn over your sin and you're sorry and you ask and beg for forgiveness. You're then realizing who you are before God makes you meek. And you accept that you can't save yourself. And you accept the free gift of salvation that comes through faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Then God gives you a new nature, a hunger, and a thirst for righteousness that gives you a desire to be His child and to be just like your Heavenly Father. But it starts with the understanding that I in myself am nothing. And I mean that. I am myself am nothing. John Oscar is the worst scum you would ever imagine if Jesus was not in my life. And I'm not even that good with him in my life. That's why I don't even like the term reverend when it's applied to me. When people jokingly say that at work or at the fire department, oh, the reverend's here. I really don't like the term reverend. Webster defines reverend as a person who is worthy of reverence and respect as a member of the clergy. And I say there is only one person worthy of our respect. There's only one person worthy of our admiration. There's only one person worthy of our worship, and that is Jesus Christ. The first beatitude finishes with this. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what is this kingdom of heaven that Jesus repeatedly speaks about in the Gospels? It's simply the power and influence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. When a group of believers who are poor in spirit get together, trusting only in Jesus, that's when the gates of hell cannot come against the church. Now we, as as members of the church and as members of the, the wider fellowship of the assemblies of God, we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That means when you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, 
The Holy Spirit comes to live within you, filling you with his presence and the assurance of your salvation. But the baptism is something else. Jesus died. He came back. John 20, 22 says he breathed in them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and took up residence within them. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the empowering for kingdom work. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit fell. They began to speak in other tongues. The Spirit gave them utterance. And they became bold witnesses of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me illustrate that a little bit if, you've, if this is new to you to explain the difference between the infilling and the baptism. Some of you may have heard of a movie series called The Fast and the Furious. If you haven't, it's a, it's a story about people who race cars on the, the illegal street racing and stuff. And the cars they race, they have big engines. They have tight steering. They have new tires. They have, they're made for going fast. They're made to take corners sharp. They have manual transmissions so they can switch gears really quick and give them extra torque to make that car burst forth in speed. Everything that makes the vehicle a race car is there and it's in great working order. That's like a person who receives Christ. Jesus comes in and through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, he cleans up our lives and he creates within us a desire to be like him and serve him. He makes us into that race car. It's ready to be used the way that he would want to use it. And then there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in street racing, the cars have what is called a nitrous system. Nitrous makes the car go very, very, very fast. It makes the engine just about explode if you give too much of them. It, it makes it go fast and increases the RPM until the car almost takes flight. It goes so fast. The Holy Spirit is our nitrous. It's that extra power that is applied to what God has already put in us from the creation in our world, and it makes us supersized for kingdom use. But we only get there if we are poor in spirit. And then the kingdom of heaven comes into us. Let's all stand. And Tammy and Jennifer, you can come back up for a moment. The Holy Spirit cannot fill us and cannot come upon us if we are filled with sin, and particularly willful sin. This is sin that God has shown you time and time again, and you stubbornly say that you don't want to let go of it. It may be something with your ego. It may be something with self-sufficiency. It may be something to do with spiritual pride. But Jesus, especially in these last days, needs a people who are poor in spirit. A people that say, my hands are open, God. My arms are open, my heart's open, my mind's open. I just say, God, use me however you will. Make me rich in the kingdom of heaven. So Tammy and Jennifer are going to lead us in a song in the morning, in, in just a minute. And it's going to just refocus us on Jesus and let him change his perspective of ourselves. Because it's all about him, amen? amen. And it's not about us. Because Jesus paid it all.